Seriously? Seriously? Yeah. They didn't want a picture with you. <laughs> All right, so just kind of ignore the picture that's happening. The non-believers. <laughs> the recent believers. Um, so I thought today I'd talk about uh, the Great Lent, since obviously we just started the Great Lent. And uh, that picture, I think I'll explain during the course of the, um, uh, the talk, but I'm, I'm guessing you guys can guess what's what. So what do you think the first picture is? Oh, subdeacon picture. Um, what do you think the first picture is? Anyone want to guess? Huh? Guess. The first picture is arid, dry land. That's us. Oh, no, I got it, I got it. And um, second picture are flowers, a bouquet, a field of, looks like tulips in Seattle. No, they're roses. No, they're tulips. Anyway, flowers. What do you think the, that, that is? Doesn't matter. So what do you think that is? That's after we eat. That's Easter. So that's April. April, you know, April showers bring May flowers, right? So these are the flowers of April. So where we are now and where we want to be. So let's go through. This is our current state. So this is the arid, dry land that we are, and this is what the, the Psalms tell us that we are, uh, land that needs watering. And then Lent comes along, and this is the process of Lent. We run a plow through the arid, dry land, right? Because we know we can't really plant in um, the dry land, and the, the, the Lent has the, the, the purpose of breaking us up, if you will. And as we've said many times and in many other ways, it isn't about the fasting. It isn't about the food. Uh, fasting is not about the food. Fasting is about much more than that. Um, and so this is what, what Lent does for us. And then eventually, um, oops, let me uh, give you this quote. Uh, this is actually from Focus on the Family. There was a day when I died, died to self, my opinions, my preferences, my tastes, and my will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approval unto God. Right, so, so um, this quote that I have up here next to it is from uh, Abu Namat al-Miskin, where he basically says, we walk out into the desert or the arena to battle, and the ego has to be destroyed, right? So Lent is exactly that. It isn't about reading ingredients. It's about the battle to destroy the ego, right? And that list is the list of things. It's the hardest list to break, okay? The easier thing is to eat food. That's easy, right? When I start dying to my opinions and my preferences and my tastes and my will and approval from others, that's really hard. That's the big stuff. And as I'm fond of telling the college kids, Christianity is a religion for adults. It's not a religion for kids. Right? We've made it into a religion for kids. We've sort of made it, uh, we've geared it towards children, but it's not for children. 
I mean, Sunday school is just kind of something we do to kill the time, right? And then eventually when they get older, they've heard something and then they can start the battle, right? And as Abuna Metta says, you go out into the arena, right? And it literally is that. Many of us as Abuna, Andrew uh, jokingly put in the sermon today, it already starts and it starts quite quickly, right? The little, nu the little nuisances and the little annoyances and the little things that start in Lent that start to pick at our preferences and our tastes and our will, right? They start quick and it doesn't relent, right? And so Lent is this time where we just kind of fight with ourselves, with the, with the base, the, the basic, the baseline of I'm not going to eat certain foods, but that's not it at all, right? It's much, much more than that. It's much greater than that. So this quote, he continues, he says, walk cautiously, patiently, humbly, know that God is at work to destroy the false you. Listen to that phrase. God is at work to destroy the false you. And this is also something that Abuna mentioned in the, in the sermon today. We said the Holy Spirit is the one at work to break us. God is at work to destroy the false you and revive the image of God who is the real you. This will not happen without your permission. You can choose to be the false you the rest of your miserable life. This is huge stuff. So I want to you know, step back and ask a question. Who's the tractor in this picture? Who's the tractor? Who's breaking up the land? Yeah, right? God's the tractor, right? God's the tractor breaking us up. Our job is to give permission. So you don't think that you are going to do this. Don't think that you will overcome whatever it is you need to overcome in, our life, in your life, right? All of us have our own thing, and we all know what it is, and we all have our own unique one, right? So it's not about you overcoming you. It's not about you defeating something. If I work really hard, I'm going to stop this. You know and I know that doesn't work very well, right? right? But what we do know is that if we allow God to pull the tractor, he breaks up the land. Right? So God is the one who does in us. Right? And we hear this in the prayers of the Igbeya, right? We say things like, sanctify our souls, make chaste our bodies, correct our thoughts, purify our intention, heal our sickness, forgive our sins. We tell God to do to us constantly. Right? And that's, that's the right direction. Our job is to get out of the way. Lent is the time when we get out of the way. Right? Where we lower us our preferences, our tastes, our wills, our desires, our ego, our self, right? The, 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 the fulfillment of the self, and we lessen that so that God can work, so that God can be effective in pulling the plow over us. And then this is the ultimate goal, right? This is what the resurrection is. This is springtime. This is the fruit of it, right? And the thing about these flowers is they look really pretty, right? But the farmer, when he looks at them, he doesn't just see pretty, he sees a lot of hard work, right? The flower looks at that field and you go, wow, that's so beautiful. And he goes, oh, you have no idea how hard this was to do. And he'll tell you all the stories and about the seed and about the, 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 the plow and about the thing that broke and how this one didn't get watered and how I had to plant this one all over again. And so you look at this and you just show up with your ticket and you say, here's five bucks and I get to look at the pretty tulip fields, right? And he'll tell you the stories behind it. 
right? And that's the way the Christian is, right? Sometimes we see the Christian, we go, wow, you've got such a great spiritual life. You know, forgive me, something ridiculous like that. And the person on the other side looks at you and goes like, are you joking? Right? You have no idea, A, how bad it is, and B, how hard it is, and see how many times I fail. Right? So this is Lent. So the journey of Lent is this journey toward the kingdom of heaven, and I want to get back to that in a second. So I'll just quickly go, kind of go over what Lent is. We have this preparation week that just ended. Um, and then we have, so, you know, Lent is 55 days. The, the, the part that Christ fasted was 40 days. So we have 40 days that Christ fasted, and we have uh, Holy Week at the very end, right? And then we have Preparation Week. So that's how many days? 40 and a week, and a week is how many? 54. So where do we get 55 from? There's one day in there that's not accounted for, right? So we have, uh, if, you, if you guys notice on Friday, there's going to be a Friday where we come and we say, this is the Sunday of the, of the end of Lent, the liturgy to celebrate the end of Lent. It's a Friday. And then Holy Week starts on Palm Sunday. So Saturday, that Saturday in the middle, is which Saturday? Lazarus Saturday, right? And that day is actually kind of in the middle, and it's neither here nor there, right? And the church decided that it's not going to let us break the fast on that one day, just like eat as much steak as we could, and then before Holy Week. So the church said, we're just going to fast through. But they're actually separate things, okay? And Lent, in fact, had nothing to do with Holy Week. In fact, Lent has nothing to do with Holy Week, right? Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. What does that have to do with Holy Week? Nothing, right? In fact, Lent used to be at a different time in the early church. So it wasn't attached to Holy Week. We just fasted with Christ 40 days and 40 nights. So at some point in the history of the church, the church took the 40 days and stuck it onto Holy Week and said, we're going to prepare for Holy Week using Lent. So we're going to take the two things and just put them together. And then they put a little cherry on top with the preparation week in the beginning um, just to kind of wrap it all together, right? So the question is, why did the church move Lent to Holy Week? Like, Why did they put those two together? And so I want to kind of explore that question today a little bit. This is a very nice quote. Years are not needed for true repentance and not days, but only an instant. That's beautiful. And sometimes we overdo this repentance thing. <laughs> it's an instant. It's a moment, right? True repentance is a moment truly moved in the heart. And it doesn't happen necessarily in the middle of something. It could be while you're driving or walking or talking or whatever, right? These moments of repentance come to us and they move us, and they change us, right? And change in the life of the Christian is the only way to live as a Christian, right? If there is no change in our life, then something is wrong. Does that make sense, right? If we're doing the same thing, if you're at this point, and you're like, this is exactly where I was last year at Lent, something's wrong, Right? Because the nature of Christ is when he comes into someone's life, he changes. Right? The, the, the example that immediately comes to mind is the Samaritan woman. In fact, all the Sundays of the gospel we're going to read today, but the Samaritan woman in particular, right? he spent like 20 minutes with her. Right? And she, she was a changed woman. Right? And this is the effect of Christ. Okay? When Christ comes in, he changes. And if you come out of an encounter with Christ the same then you didn't actually encounter Christ, right? And can that happen? Can I encounter Christ and then come out the same? Absolutely. 
Every Sunday, we come, we see Christ, and then we leave the same, right? And uh, the story I like to talk about is the story of, of Simon the, the Pharisee when the sinful woman came into his house. Simon had invited him into his house, and the sinful woman came, and she cried, and she wept, on, and she kissed his feet and, and washed them with her hair and dried them with the hair of her head, right? And Simon was right there, and what did Simon get out of this interaction? Nothing. He was, he's the one who invited Christ to his house. Christ was in his house, and yet Simon came away with nothing, and this woman, who was what? Repentant, came away with everything, with everything, right? So we can come and we can get nothing. And every Sunday, people come and some people get and some people don't. Every Sunday, right? And so the question is, how do we take, right? The verse says, he who loves little, for little, uh, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. So the reverse of that is, if you don't love, then you haven't been forgiven. So when someone says, I don't really feel much towards God, the answer is, you haven't been forgiven much, which means either you don't have much to be forgiven, which is not the case, or B, you haven't repented much. You haven't asked for much forgiveness, right? So the way we love more is we repent more. We ask for more forgiveness. We throw ourselves out before Christ more, and then we love more. So when your love is weak and it's cold, you know the repentance is weak and cold. And those two go hand in hand. So what does the word repentance mean? We talked about this before. Hmm? Change in direction, right? It comes from the Greek word metania, and it means a change in direction. And this is extremely important. <laughs> it's extremely important. Let her scream, you say. Um, it's extremely important that we think about what this means for Lent in particular. Okay? A change in direction means I go from what? I look one way, and then I look the other way, right? So if I want to change direction, if I'm walking this way and I want to start walking that way, the first thing I have to do is what? I have to, well, before I pivot my body, I have to look, right? You know, kids do this all the time, right? They'll be standing there and then they'll back up, right? And then they'll just back into you because you, you don't have any eyes that way, right? And so I explain to them, there's no eyes behind you. You have to look first, then walk, right? So repentance is that. It's that turn of the head. And it's really that simple. It isn't the movement of the body. It's just the turn of the head. Where I go, instead of looking at the world, I'm going to look at God. It's not like I become better, or I stop doing bad things, or I change my behavior even. Th those aren't the things. That's not where repentance is. It isn't I did more things, I became better, I stopped doing. I just changed the direction of my head, of the gaze. This is what repentance is, right? And this is what Christ calls us to do during Lent. And it's really important. Um, that we do this during Lent. So over and over today, you heard Abuna say something over and over again. He kept saying fasting and prayer. And so the church is trying to teach us that there's two parts to repentance, okay? The fasting part is to say, I'm going to stop 
looking at the bad thing. I'm going to stop looking at my, the world and at my life and my comforts and my own, you know, my own peace and my own preferences and my own tastes and do what I want to do, right? I'm going to let, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop that stuff. That's fine, but that's just moral behavior, right? The second part is I have to do what? Turn towards God. And if I don't turn towards God, then the repentance is incomplete. It's half a repentance. It's, if I just say, I'm going to stop bad things, I'm going to stop looking at the bad things, that's not repentance. That's just being moralistic. Does that make sense? So that second half is very important. So the church says fasting and prayer. And then after the gospel today, we said, our Father who art in heaven. Why are we saying our Father who art in heaven? Over and over, if you notice in the hymns of the church during Vespers last night, we said, our Father who art in heaven. And even during communion time, there's a hymn that says, Our Father who art in heaven. And we keep saying, Our Father who art in heaven. And you're like, what does that have to do with Lent? Why do they add that to Lent? Because that's the key to Lent. It's the Our Father who art in heaven. What's Our Father who art in heaven? It's the quintessential prayer. It's the Lord's prayer. It's prayer. Right? So if I, just, if I just gaze away from sin, that's one thing. But that's not enough. It's not really going to work even. I have to gaze toward God. That second half is the, is the important part, right? And that's why you'll hear people give tips like, you know, increase your spiritual reading, reading the Bible, increase um, prayer, increase time in the liturgy, increase things like that. Luckily, the uh, AV crew is here. This, uh, this one isn't as loud as the other one. One as much. All right. So, um, you know, this is my, one of my favorite icons. This is the icon of Peter falling. And again, this, this is uh, Pope Curlus's favorite psalm, and we, we talk a lot about this. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. And so this is so applicable to me during Lent, right? Because when we get snared, and we all get snared, you know, whether it be someone we can't get along with, someone we can't stand, something that's causing us difficulty in our life, a sin that's in our life, a relationship, a person, a temptation, a trial, a sickness, a disease, whatever the snare is, okay? We all get snared. And our instinct when we get snared is to look at the snare, right? I always imagine my, my foot getting caught in a trap. And as soon as my foot gets caught in a trap, I look at the trap, right? Because I got to figure out how to get out of the trap. So I stare at the trap. And what this verse is telling us is to reverse the thinking and say, you have to stare up. Right? My eyes are ever on the Lord, for he will release my feet from the snare, not my own strength, not my own abilities, not my own wit. And it is a very simple process of just staring up as opposed to looking down. And that's the key. So this quote from Elder Proforius is one of my favorite quotes, and he calls it the better way. So there's two ways to end sin. I can fight sin, or I can look at God. And he says the better way, the easy way, is to look at God. So he says, others try to become holy by fighting against their passions and their sins. This is us sometimes. And others yet by loving God and his will. 
The former, the ones who are fighting against their passions, the former achieve only a few things because their effort is very cold and hard. The latter, the ones who are loving Christ, achieve a lot more because by loving Christ, sinful passions lose their appeal and power before the joy and love of Christ that they feel. And this is really the simple way, right? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, when, when someone, when, when, you know, you have this engaged couple, right, and then the guy goes out of his way and goes crazy and buys her flowers and then drives to the end of the earth to buy her her favorite whatever chocolate and then drives all the way back and you're like, why are you doing all this, you know? And he says, because I'm crazy about her, right? I love her. So I went and drove up to, you know, Washington, so I get her favorite tulips, right? Because I know those are where the, the, the fresh ones are, right? And you're like, why would you go through so many things? It's because of the love he has. It isn't because someone made him, right? That's the cold, hard way, and it doesn't work. I got to be good. I got to be, got to stop this thing. I got to do, stop doing that. I, that's a very cold, hard way to live, and it's not very effective. The easier way is when I love God, the, the bad things or the other things lose their appeal naturally, very simply, right? So instead of trying to force myself to be a better, um, you know, uh, Christian, I simply love Christ and then see what happens, right? And, and Augustine says this. St. Augustine has this, this statement that he makes that everyone just kind of, it's kind of mind-boggling. He says, love God and do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. It's a mind-boggling statement, right? And of course, it's, you know, you got to be careful, right? You want to make sure your father in confession is involved somehow. But love God and do whatever. Because when you love, you're going to do. You're going to do everything in your power. And you're going to do the right things. And you're going to do it in the right way without being forced or coerced. And then he says, when, when, down, when dawn breaks and the light of the sun enters your room, all the darkness leaves immediately and unavoidably. So then he associates it with the sun coming in the darkness. And he says, when you open the door, or when you open the, the shade and the light comes in, darkness leaves. And there's no point in trying to take darkness out of our lives because that's what we try to do, right? We try to remove darkness. We try to, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop that. That's just removing darkness. And the best way to remove darkness is to introduce light. It's the simplest way. It's the easiest way. In fact, it's impossible to do it the other way, right? I know none of you can read this, so I'm just going to give you a quick map of uh, <laughs> the Sundays of Lent. First one was Preparation Sunday, that was last Sunday. Today was the Treasures Sunday, so this is the Sunday where we talk about treasures on earth. And what the church is trying to tell us is, focus on the treasure, right? It's actually giving us a hint, don't just focus on the bad stuff. Don't just focus on the food. Focus on the goal. Focus on the treasure. Focus on the end, right? Because that's what's going to bring it home. That's what's going to drive you to be motivated. And then, um, and then the next three Sundays is the prodigal son, the Samaritan woman, or the next four Sundays, prodigal son, Samaritan woman, the paralytic, and the born blind man. And each one of those is an example of repentance and of seeing Christ, right? And of, and of coming into contact with Christ, being enlightened somehow, being healed somehow, right? And they're all just, the, you know, especially the prodigal son next week is sort of the Oh, that's right. That's right. Sorry, I missed temptation. Um, okay, so the, the four Sundays. Okay, so before we get to the four Sundays, we have Temptation Sunday, which is next Sunday. And what the church is trying to tell us there is that be prepared for the battles that are coming, right? So it's very clearly telling you that the battles are not only normal, 
they're necessary, and they happened even to Christ. In fact, Christ went through the battles as a human, and he defeated the battles, as the temptations, as a human, and we're called to unite ourselves with that successful, victorious Christ who defeated temptation, and we join him, right? And so that's, the, that's kind of the outline of the next, of Lent. Uh, and then we have the four uh, weeks, and then after that is Palm Sunday. Um, we still have more time. Usually the kids are in here by now, so I'm kind of confused. Um, I have like 30 more slides, but I usually don't get to all of them. Okay, so I want to I wanna talk about this concept of love as, a, as the driver of Lent, okay? Um, there's these quotes that we read, and those quotes, sometimes if we don't put them in context of um, love, then they're kind of confusing. So there's a quote by a saint, and I, I kind of X'd out the name, and he's a saint. He says, every physical and spiritual task which does not involve pain, toil, and trouble never bears fruit for the person who engages in it. For the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence, and the violence lay hold of it. So look at the quote. Every spiritual, physical and spiritual task which does not involve pain, toil, and trouble. And so when I read that, I think to myself, gosh, I got to have pain, toil, and trouble, right? I got to get in there, and I got to fight, and it's just got to be angry, and I'm going to be pissed off and hangry half the time, and, and I'm just going to grind through this, okay? And there is a role for that, okay? And what he's saying is not inaccurate. Okay? But if you just put that one, that just that one, um, part and you just hold that one part up, then it becomes cold, right? And it becomes unfulfilling. So now let's put it with what Elder Proforio says after that. He says, when you love Christ, you exert yourself. So now he's talking about the exertion above, okay? But what's the source of the exertion? When you love Christ, you exert yourself, but a blessed exertion. You suffer, but with joy. You make prostrations and pray because these are the things you crave for with a divine craving. So when you stand to pray, it's not like, okay, I need, you know, my abuna said I got to pray more. I'll stand there for 15 minutes. I'll just read Igbeya. I got to grind through this. Although there is a role for pushing oneself, that isn't the source, right? The source has to be a divine love, right? It's sort of like when you meet a friend, you know, I just came back from Seattle last weekend and everyone I saw, I couldn't. I just wanted to talk to them for like an hour, you know, every single person. And every single person, there wasn't enough time to talk to them, right? And I was dying to speak with all of them because I missed them, right? When, when our, conver our, our conversation with God becomes like that, it's a very different thing, right? When prayer isn't a cold thing, but rather a discussion with a friend, a loved friend, then it becomes longer and longer and longer naturally without any exertion. Okay, the kids are here. Um, okay, one, uh, another thing I want to just very quickly, I saw this quote, uh, Father Stephen, he's a, an Orthodox priest, and I saw it on Facebook, and I really liked it. He says, um, the, the, the title of the article is, You Are Not Your Sin, and I really like the title of this article, because sometimes when, when you're asked to identify yourself, you say, who are you? You say, I'm a liar, I'm a glutton, I'm selfish, I'm this, right? And you label yourself as your sin, 
as whatever it is, the worst thing you are of yourself. I'm controlling, I'm paranoid, I'm angry, I'm resentful. That's who I am. And the article says you are not that. You are not your sin. And sometimes in Lent, we, can, we think the right thing to do is to just beat ourselves down and say, I'm this horrible thing, and I need to be broken, and I need to repent of this stuff. But that's not the way that God wants us to look at ourselves, because that is not the way he looks at us, right? I mean, when your child comes up to you and says, I'm just a miserable, horrible whatever, you'd be like, God forbid, right? You throw your arms around them. You say, I absolutely love you just the way you are. There is no doubt that I love you the way you are, right? And you would smother them with kisses and hugs and take them to ice cream immediately if they ever said, I'm just this, and they said something negative about themselves, and that's all I am. You couldn't, you couldn't hear it. You couldn't, you couldn't take it, right? And this is, this is what God wants from us, right? When we start saying this about ourselves and labeling ourselves as negative things, God wants to run, put his arms around and say, absolutely not. You're my son. You're my daughter. So he continues, we can all experience at a toxic level shame that is self-inflicted, I'm not saying there shouldn't be shame in sin, but the shame from sin is natural. Do you know what I'm saying? You can't commit a sin and not feel shame. You're going to feel it because the Holy Spirit's inside of you, and he's going to push you to that shame. So you can't not have shame. It always, it's always part of the territory with sin. Exactly. So what, what Michael said is, on top of that, Satan will pile on and say, he's the one who puts in our heads that you're unacceptable. You're not worthy. You're a horrible person. Right? And sometimes Satan will discourage us by telling us we're garbage so that we give up. Because once you give up, he wins. Right? Once you give up, he wins. So Satan is the first to tell you that you're horrible and that you'll never amount to anything. So he says, any number of sinful actions can yield that result. And it is here that I want to intervene on this article and drive home a point. We are not our sin. Right, so the kids are here, so I'll just end. But um, I want you to think about this as Lent continues, that the fight is sometimes in our own head, that it isn't um, just a fight against... Uh, oh, the kids are all over the place. <laughs> like a thousand of them came in. Anybody have any questions, comments? Um, let, uh, let me see if I got the question right. The question is, um, St. George, for example, was, was given struggle for, for seven years. Um, so 
let, let me step back. So the, the tractor that I, that I talked about is, is Christ plowing us, right? So, I mean, to go back to the, to, the, to the part of Lent, the part I can control, right? And so I think there's a, a, a bit of it, there's what I can choose to do to myself, so to speak, during Lent, restrictions I can put on myself, ascetic practices I can put on myself, versus what's imposed on me from the outside. So I, I, it's very hard for me to talk about what's imposed on me from the outside. That's, that's far more difficult. Now you need kind of, you know, glasses of God, right? Um, but I can, I can talk about what I impose on myself, right? So the ascetic practices I'm talking about are me imposing my own limitations and, and trying to bring my body into subjection, as St. Paul says, to the degree that I can, right? Now, whether or not God comes in and says, I think you need a little bit more, a little more here, a little bit more there, I think that's a very one-on-one -on -one personal thing, right? That's very difficult to answer, you know. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So the, the question is, so why, why limit this practice to Lent? And I think one of the, the answers I heard that uh, Abun Antonio Sanin once said that I really liked was, and I'll, I'll end with this, is that Lent is sort of like um, the time when we um, increase uh, our spiritual practices in order to increase a steady state, okay? So the example I like to give is, you know, I, you know running, because, you know, I know something about running, right? So if you want to run the mile faster, okay, how do you get a better time to run the mile? Well, when you go to your track coach and you say, I want to run a faster mile time, he doesn't just say, run the mile over and over again, because that doesn't make you run the mile any faster, right? The way you can run the mile faster is you say, go run a 200, you know, mile 1600, run, run a 200 or a four, 400 really, really fast, right? As fast as you can, okay? So these, these things called intervals, right? Anyone here done track or anything, right? So there's intervals, right? Intervals, we all know, we shudder at the word intervals, right? Because we remember what they do to us. But intervals are basically, you know, run 200 meters as fast as you can, take a break, and then run 200 meters again as fast as you can. And we're going to do it 10 times, and when you do that, then you run the mile faster, okay? So what this basically saying is you're going to run for 200 meters at an unsustainably fast pace, right? You're going to push yourself to run faster than you can during the mile, during the long distance. But that's okay because you're going to push yourself and your body will adapt to that faster speed. And then when you go run the normal mile, you'll just be faster because your body has adapted, okay? So to me... Um, spiritual, the, the Lent has some of that property to it, which is I push myself up here to this sort of unsustainably high spiritual level. I do more spiritual things. I read more. I go to liturgies. I fast. I'm constantly pushing up my, I push and in an unsustainable fashion. And then when I fall at, at the end of Lent, which everybody does, you know, like at the end of Lent, everyone's like a disaster, right? Everyone's like, ah, finally, right? And everyone just lets go of everything, which is fine. It's normal, right? We come down, but we don't come down as far, hopefully, as we were before, right? Because we've pushed at this very high level for 40 days or 50 days or whatever the case may be, right? So it, it allows us to kind of, you know, break new territory, right? Um, even, you know, the, the concept of like cramming is, I think, similar, right? Where you just study and you push and you push and you push for two days before an exam. Well, you can't study like that the rest of your life. Well, yeah, we get that, but the exam's right here. So I'm going to push and then I'm going to rest, right? And I think this is a really nice thing of the Orthodox Church, right? Because 
when you're in a, in a, in a, in a, the Orthodox Church has seasons, right? And seasons are natural as humans, right? There's, there's, there's the, the winter and it's followed by the spring, right? And there's a, there's a cycle to life. And the, 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 the church recognizes that humans, because God did this, that humans need this in their spiritual life. So we can't just say, be spiritual all the time the same way, right? Where you just kind of hold steady state for the rest of your life. The church recognizes there's winter, and then there's spring, and then there's summer. And in the spiritual life, it's the same way, right? We have the season where we push, and then a season where we feast and we rejoice, right? In fact, during, during um, uh, 50 days, the resurrection period, you're not allowed to do a matanya. So I said the word repentance means matanya. A matanya is a prostration. The church says you are forbidden from doing a matanya during those 50 days. It's not about repentance now. It's not about repentance now. It's about feasting in the life with God, in the resurrection, right? So the church says during this season, it's all about matanyas. It's all about repentance. And then after that, don't do that anymore, right? So it is very different, okay? And the church knows that humans are like this. We can't just kind of be spiritual all the time at one level. There's a time when we can push. It's like dieting, right? <laughs> right? We push on the diet, and then we let go. Right? And we go, oh, God, it's all back. i got to work again, right? But that's kind of the natural way, right? It's just very hard to just kind of just stay healthy your whole life. That's just for losers, right? Anyway, I think uh, the kids are here, so I'll... I'll end. Any other questions? Anyway, this is what the church wants us to look towards, right? So we'll maybe talk about it another time. Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Abuna, can you pray for us, please? Be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to teach. Deliver us from Christ Jesus.